Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. And my guest today is Jared Darby, who is who has quite a long title, which I'm going to read, which is the administrator for the Memphis and Shelby County Office of Sustainability and Resilience. So welcome to the show, Jared. Thank you for having me. I thought this would be a timely topic because I think one of the big surprises from, of course, we're all accustomed now. There's a lot of, you know, climate events of different kinds with increasing frequency happening in our country around the world. But recently, a big surprise, I think, for a lot of people for Hurricane Ida, which, of course, was expected to um, you know, devastate New Orleans and the surrounding region with wind and water, which it did. But the that there were huge impacts in the Northeast U.S. Um, and, and in fact, I think some in Tennessee, but I'm thinking particularly about New York and New Jersey, where there was significant flooding. And I think the majority of the deaths from Hurricane Ida were in that were in that region from people who lived in basement apartments and people who were in their cars and were caught in flooding. And so I think a lot of people in other communities kind of like Memphis kind of got to thinking, huh, you know, could that happen here? And how resilient is Memphis and Shelby County? And as it turns out, we've been thinking about that for the last several years and have done quite a bit of planning and work to anticipate that. Uh, so that's what I wanted to talk about today. Um, how resilient are we and how are we prepared for future climate events like this? So I guess first question, Jared, I mean, Shelby County has a sustainability plan. I was going to ask you about that first, but without getting too much into the weeds, I was realizing that what came first was a regional green print plan. And um, which laid the ground really for the sustainability plan. So if I'm right about that, can you just briefly talk about what the what the the regional green print plan was and then how um, and then how it sort of laid the groundwork for the sustainability work? Yeah, well, some certainly some good work that was done by uh, our predecessors in this office. And uh, unfortunately, I wasn't around as much in terms of the green print plan. Uh, I was actually working in a different jurisdiction when uh, director, who is now director John Zena came uh, to all the different surrounding jurisdictions with the green print plan and laid out this um, idea, this thought that um, providing connectivity uh, through recreation with a green print plan. And it was it was it was pretty unique because he then asked the different uh, governing authorities of these jurisdictions to say, "Hey, um, uh, would you would you mind voting on this? Not to approve this plan as some authoritative document, but uh, that you agree with the direction that we're taking the region." And um, 
I think every I think every jurisdiction didn't have a problem with that. I know my jurisdiction in particular had a few questions, but were like, hey, no, I think this is this is good economically. This is good socially. This is good um, for the physical environment. This makes sense. And uh, it, it was approved and off we go. In terms of the document for our National Disaster Resilience Competition Grant, um, I know it was used as part of phase one application. And let's don't get caught up in in the phases of the applications. It yeah, was just, please, let's right. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, uh, but it was an important uh, piece of groundwork that was done and that was certainly needed in order for our application for the grant to be considered a serious application. And so let me just so let me just so so we received the the grant that was we used to do the green print plan that was a grant from the federal government and I think what you're saying is that that plan there was a plan that came out of it uh, teed us up to go back to the government and get additional dollars to do more in depth planning around sustainability do I have that right Yes, ma'am, and I, I love the term teed up. That's that's exactly uh, what we were able to do with that with that document. And again, it, it's not an authoritative document, but it's just a handshake saying that we we agree to the green print plan and, and the initiatives that are in the plan. And just to have that sort of agreement across all these jurisdictions, again, a handshake agreement, I think really uh, and I, I may be putting words in our um <laughs> In, in HUD's mouth, if you will, housing and urban development, uh, but they saw that type of camaraderieship and said, hey, they can get some of these things done that they've applied to do. I mean, why did we, um, why do you think the leadership thought this was important? I mean, we do have a, we, we have a history of flooding in this area, correct? Yeah. Well, uh, so I, when I first got brought on, I, uh, and I think maybe we can touch touch on some of these individual projects later on in, in, in the show, in the interview. But when I was first brought on, I got, I got to take a bit of a tour of all these areas that were hit really hard with the 2011 flood. And we'll take Millington, for example, as staff was, was showing me around and the consultants and, and we, were, we were walking through the flood damage something really hit home with me. Uh, there is a row of apartments. I forget the road that they were on, but on the exterior, there were different levels or different coloration on the brick. And each different coloration represented a different flood level that had hit that area. Wow. And that really hit home with me that, wow, this is a real repetitive loss type environment. Uh, economic impacts untold, uh, and, and especially disappropriate uh, impacts to low to moderate populations in our area. And I think, hey, finally, the 2011 flood just really brought about the, hey, we're kind of tired of this. Let's 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 see what we can do. Let's see how we can help these areas um, be more resilient to these types of flooding events. Well, in Southwest Memphis too was also hit. Wasn't it during that time, some of the, you know, the Boxtown community, I remember some people lost their homes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, many lost their homes in the Southwest area, West Junction neighborhood area. Uh, luckily, uh, with the National Disaster Resilience Competition Grant, or we'll call NDRC for short, 
um, we get to address a lot of those issues in that neighborhood and hopefully be able to provide some uh, uh, some amenities and some flood protection from this point moving forward. Yeah, I want to talk about that. So the but so this is going maybe going to be a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Why is you know the Memphis area prone to flooding? What are the geographic elements that make us prone to flooding? Well, a couple of things. We're we, we're located in obviously three feeder basins that uh, empty into uh, the mighty Mississippi, and so we're okay, carrying what are, water. What are, what are feeder What are feeder basins? I'm ringing my bell. What are feeder? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Um, just basically, we're at the very end of all the water um, coming from the entire basins. They they basically end right here where Memphis uh, urban environment is 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 built. So, um, so we have not only our water to worry about, but we have the water from other jurisdictions uh, down or upstream from us that we're sort of having to deal with. And back to your question, it's no secret, I think, that the city of Memphis and and some other jurisdictions are a low-density, sprawled environment. And with that type of uh, built environment, you have um, impervious surfaces, and those are surfaces that rainwater can't um, can't be absorbed into the ground, and so it's got to go somewhere. Par- parking lots, yeah, and things absolutely. like that. Absolutely, parking lots, rooftops, interstates. Uh, that that water's got to go somewhere. So, in the event that we have, uh, there's two different types of uh, flooding events: um, riverine flooding, where the rivers swell their banks. And then flash flooding, where you may have a very localized area uh, receiving inches upon inches of rain and uh, in, in hours. Um, when you have those type of events, especially the flash flooding, uh, is the water has nowhere to go. And that, that results in localized flooding. Those are difficult to predict and hard to plan for in terms of resiliency and other infrastructure and codes. The riverine flooding, believe it or not, doesn't happen all that often in terms of... Um, uh, event, event timing, if you will. Uh, 2011 was just sort of that perfect storm where the Mississippi River was really high, and the Lusitatchee and the Wolf River and South Cypress Creek—they didn't have—they didn't have anywhere to go, so they had to go and swell their banks. And then you had some flash flooding associated with that, and it was really a devastating event. And flash flooding is like what we saw in the Northeast U.S. after Hurricane Ida, right? For the most for the part, most part yes, you know, so much rain came through, and I guess that's on some level the scariest because you just you can't really predict no. that at all. Right. The meteorologists at the National Weather Service, and I'm going to do a little plug for those guys. They're colleagues of mine and friends, and they do a really great job. They have a hydrologist on staff, and they monitor these storms and the QPF, the amount of precipitation that that these storms could could produce and, and they're on it, right? But still, it's it's so difficult to determine real uh, on the ground truthing and and uh, the type of environment that's underneath the storm. Uh, is it a field or is it a mall parking lot? It makes a difference. Well, and so it sounds like the two big factors to make us uh, prone to floods are, you know, a lot of water flowing into the Mississippi, 
from other of the Lusahatchee and things like that. And then also, like a lot of cities, we do have a lot of impervious surfaces, meaning, you know, the proverbial paving paradise to put up a parking lot. Um, we've paved over and there's, and like you said, the water has nowhere to go. Just so that's, that's, you know, not sexy, but it's important in understanding, um, how, you know, how the built environment responds to, you know, weather, weather disasters like this. So in terms of the resilience plan itself, um, and I know you probably came on after the plan was developed, but can you t- tell us a little bit about, you know, the process, who was involved and what the, I do want to talk about the projects that were funded, yeah. but there was also a, a plan was um, a plan for how our region w- could respond to these was developed. So that's, I'm interested in that first. Yeah, sure. So um Luckily, um, I can claim the Regional Resilience Master Plan as I was the primary planner on the project. Uh, at okay, the time. right. So uh, that was that was my baby, so to speak. And we wanted to, we wanted this Resilience Master Plan to be accessible to all populations, all demographics. We did not want the plan to be a technical document of 650 pages that sat on a shelf. And so we made it a point to involve anybody and everybody from all points of life to provide feedback on what resilience means to them and how we can become more resilient. So if you were breathing and kicking, uh, you were certainly invited to one of our many um, public uh, meetings, discussions, if you will. Uh, We had some... (laughs) Uh, the the consultants that we had uh, on on this particular uh, project had a lot of fun games for folks to play. It, all the meetings were packed out. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun to uh, see all the participation. We also included all the state agencies, uh, TDAC, uh, TDOT, uh, Tennessee Department of Environmental Conservative, Tennessee Department of Transportation, uh, Army Corps of Engineers any federal agencies that were interested in being involved as well as 23 municipalities and four counties and two states had representation uh, in this plan. Uh, We wanted it to be a high level solution. It's not going to dig down and solve, I'm gonna pick on a random jurisdiction. It's not gonna solve Lakeland's um, flooding in subdivision A, not gonna do that. But it will give you the um, knowledge and wisdom, if you will, to go out and find those resources and how that how the certain solutions may uh, be available to that particular um, issue in that particular jurisdiction. So are there recommendations? I don't remember. I was involved very tangentially in the plan, um, doing some of the community engagement, but I don't remember if there were specific recommendations for the different um, for the different municipalities in Shelby County. Yeah, we interviewed all the elected officials within all the jurisdictions of the plan's uh, geographic scope. And we also interviewed the technical experts for each of those jurisdictions. And they provided us with their concerns. Um, and we listed those concerns in the appendix of the plan. And along with those concerns that we listed, uh, we also highlighted each section of the plan that could address those concerns. Um, The great thing 
I think about this particular plan is you, you don't have to read it from page one to page 650 for it to be useful to you. Um, grab a section and the sections are usually just 20 pages long. Maybe one deals with um, smart energy. Uh, maybe one section deals with uh, flash flooding. Maybe one section deals with construction codes. Um, it's a really, I think a unique plan from that standpoint where an elected official or um, a random person walking down the street, if you will, could grab a section of that plan and, and read it in, a, in an evening and have a better idea of how to serve their citizens. Yeah, I'm definitely, you know, the podcast version of the show will have show notes and I'll definitely plan to link to, um, I'll definitely put a link to the plan in the show notes you know, if people want more information, for sure. So before um, we go on, I just want to, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And we're talking to uh, Jared Darby, and we're talking about how resilient Shelby County is, especially to flooding. So, um, you know, it's interesting because I mentioned I was just a very involved in a very small way in some of the engagement in the very beginning. And I found it difficult to engage people. It, even though people were familiar with the 2011 flood, I think, I think resilience seems very abstract to people. And, um, you know, when you do neighborhood planning, you know, people look at the map, hey, that's where I live, that's where the store is, that's where, you know, Mrs. Brown, who gave me candy after school. I mean, it's easy to engage, um, but but um, I think people found, I'm glad it was, you know, the engagement overall was very successful because personally I found people found it to be abstract. And yeah, people think flooding is bad, but um, it doesn't seem as looming a threat as, you um, you know, a tire dealer that wants to go in, you know, on the commercial strip right where you live. Yeah. Again, we we did have really good participation. And one of, I I believe one of the exercises that was really popular uh, during our participation, uh, part of the, of the, of the plan was what affects you on a daily basis, a monthly basis that alters your um, schedule, your daily plans, your, your what affects your property? What affects you as a person in terms of natural disasters, even just weather? Most was flooding, I think, and um, wind damage, power outages were the very were kind of at the very tip top. And some of the some of the participants that were maybe my age and older uh, still sort of has that threat of earthquake. In, in the back of their minds, uh, we, we do not sit well in terms of uh, subsurface geology for, for earthquakes. Um, and, and, and I think that's just a product of uh, the, uh, the late 80s, early 90s, when earthquakes were, uh, were at the forefront in the Memphis metro area. And the, those people remember that. So we got, we got some, some earthquake issues. Um, there were some social uh, issues that were put forth. But... Um, we didn't wall anybody in and we took that information and uh, we coalesced it all into this, into this large plan. And we provided these, these high level solutions for jurisdictions, 
school boards, uh, state agencies to implement. And I'm pretty excited. Um, I, I, I think some of this plan is, is, is actually already um, being implemented. Well, that's great. Well, let's talk about some of the the implementation projects. I mean, one of the great things about this, um, the second federal grant, you know, a lot of times, as you know, there's money for planning, but not ever any money for implementation. And the second grant actually it had money to develop a sustainability, but actually had money to spend on actual projects to increase our region's resilience. And so, um, and so let, let's talk about those. And the, um, one of the cool things about all of these projects, I think, are that, um, that they increased our resilience, but also brought some, um, community amenities to the table that people could enjoy in addition to knowing that they're, they're stronger. So let's, well, um, why don't you, let's just go down and talk about maybe three of them and I'll let you pick the order we do those. Yeah. So there, there is money available. We have basically wrapped up, um, design on two of our major projects and, um, hoping to wrap up design here in the next, uh, before the end of the year on our third project. But one of my favorites, well, they're all, they're all quite good, but is we call it the big Creek project. Um, that project is, uh, has a lot sort of, um, going on with it, but uh, the first bit, that's the that's project in Millington. That's the Millington. Yeah. Right. It's, it's just, it's, it, it really, it, it, it's between, uh, Paul, Paul uh, Bryant Parkway, Highway 51, just to the uh, uh, east of Highway 51. And then uh, Big Creek is actually the northern boundary for the project. Um, without getting in too much detail, uh, it, it's basically a water storage pro- project to take on some of those floodwaters upstream so as not to uh, impact the uh, local area, the naval base, the... Um, uh, residents that live right there uh, north of uh, Big Creek, uh, and it's it's a super challenging project because there's so much dirt work uh, involved. It's it's originally was going to create some additional wetlands, and I think we still are going to do some of that. Uh, but uh, in terms of amenities, absolutely, um, I think an eight field multi-purpose area for the Millington Regional Area. Um, parking, um, some um, canopied areas, new tree plantings, uh, an earthen uh, berm uh, to go along the northern side of Big Creek to protect, uh, again, um, to protect those areas that I mentioned earlier. Uh, And construction has started on that. Uh, They're installing the utilities underneath Highway 51 as as we speak uh, to, to serve those areas. All of that is area one, right? There's so much going on there. The Audubon Society has been involved in area two, which is just below the naval base. Uh, we're going to extend that berm or that levee, if you will, uh, to protect the naval base in area two. In area three, we'll have uh, some nature trails, boardwalks, some um, uh, parking there for, for those to take advantage of the new, um, new trails. And then also... We'll be extending that berm that we've discussed for area one and area two into area three to continue to protect the residents to the north. Yeah, that's so great because all of these things 
I mean, people will be able to enjoy 365 days a year and hopefully it'll never flood. I mean, if it does, it will be once in a while. And so that really, that in that area, that's going to protect the region. I mean, the naval base, we didn't talk about that when we talked about the flooding, but the naval base is threatened. But the people, yeah, I mean, that's, like I said, very... uh, very cool benef- community benefits come. It's re- it's really sort of the you know the win the proverbial win win. So what about the Wolf River project? Yeah, so the Wolf River project was certainly unique. Uh, you had two uh, what I would consider regional parks uh, and sort of neighborhood slash regional parks, Rodney Baber Park and Kennedy uh, Park. They're both uh, were damaged in several of the uh, previous floods and just had not been repaired. Uh, not only are we going in to repair um, some of the existing infrastructure, uh, we're providing new infrastructure and new recreational activities. Um, lakes, piers, fishing areas, um, market um, and pavilion areas, new softball, baseball fields, eight multipurpose fields, um, new parking, uh, I think I think a new a whole big new playground, about a half a million dollar playground, and just really great amenities for both these parks. And it sort of hits home for me because I remember my dad coaching women's softball, and I'm running around the dugout as a five or six year old. You know, these have a sentimental um, value to many Memphians, and um, it, it'll it'll be great to see these parks restored to their former glory. But more importantly. All of these recreational amenities will play an active role in flood storage, much like Big Creek uh, will that we talked about um, earlier. And in addition, we will connect uh, those, the, the parks will connect the Wolf River Greenway and, and will extend the Wolf River Greenway. Uh, so there will be a connection between both parks through the Wolf River Greenway. And I think that's really pretty cool. That is cool. Um, so basically, you're you know you're improving two. I mean, Rodney Baber Park basically had been I don't want to say abandoned. That's too strong a word, but it could not be used right. for a number of years. And of course, that's a major amenity in the Fraser community. That's being rebuilt, improved Kennedy Park, and then the Wolf River Greenway. So again, huge community benefits that are um, coupled with. Um, water storage for um, future flooding events. So and what about the, just finally, what about the, the, the work in, there is some work in Southwest Memphis, isn't sure. it? Sure. Uh, it's a little, a little bit different, like maybe purchasing people's homes and who weren't able to go back. And I can't remember exactly. Yeah. That was a different kind of damage. Sure. Um, West Junction neighborhood was our study area for the South Cypress Creek project. Uh, South Cypress Creek Project was was really unique for me. It's the first time that I've ever uh, had an opportunity to be a part of a project where we're moving a river. Basically, we're moving a creek back to its natural meandering path. And of course, this allows um, additional um, flood storage uh, for when the time comes of, of, of uh, rain events uh, that would cause that flooding. Uh, in addition, there was, there was homes that... Um, were located near the South Cypress Creek area. Several were chosen for purchase, uh, and this is voluntary purchase only. Um, in no way were we going to force anyone to move or relocate. Uh, and we've had some good success with our purchase program. 
I think we're somewhere around 80 properties that we've purchased at this point. And there are several that have, have stated that they don't wish to move. And you know what, we're going to respect that. And we're going to work around uh, those people's property. And we're going to make it as safe as we can for them through um, some, some additional berms and dirt work. And we're also going to provide some, some amenities, much like the other two uh, properties. Uh, some trails, some hardscapes, some landscapes, some open fields. Uh, open fields in terms of uh, open fields, not um, not uh, parks or, or, or multi-purpose fields or soccer fields or things of that nature. But um, we're the river needs a, a place to go when 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 it's raining uh, and, and and during the flood event. So. Um, we're, we're sort of clearing out that area and uh, working around those that do not wish to to leave their their homes. And uh, that that project is still in design phase. We've had some, um, uh, I guess, some some hard breaks or some uh, speed bumps on that particular project. And, and that's always the case when you have a project of that uh, caliber next to uh, residential areas. Um, but hoping to um, get under contract for uh, construction sometime in uh, the end of this year, beginning of next year. And people that are that are that wish to leave um, and having their houses purchased, will be will they have an opportunity to um, move into a you know a different part of the neighborhood if they want to? Sure. Um, one of the uh, one of the uh, grant uh, metrics is to. If we could, we're going to purchase their property at pre 2011 flood values, which is really great for the homeowners. And uh, they can take those funds. And if they wish to relocate in the West Junction neighborhood, neighborhood, HUD will provide them an additional $25,000 to go towards a new constructed home in one of the vacant parcels uh, located in that neighborhood. That's great. Yeah, I think that I'm, I'm, on some level, you know, that project, I guess, seems a little less sexy, but it's so important because that area of the city is just very tucked away. And I think a lot of those homeowners had repeated for Yeah, very much the so. Years. I, I've, I've enjoyed working in that area. It's been, a, it's been a little while since we've had some public hearings. Well, public hearings is not the right term. Public meetings. Uh, to provide information on the project, uh, but what a united um, neighborhood and what a great part of Memphis. Uh, they're super excited about um, the proposed changes for the area. Great. So, Jared, we're pretty much out of time, but the, is there any is there anything coming up people need to know about? It sounds like you're hard at work just moving these projects along. Um, but are there, is there, are there other opportunities coming up for people to you know, participate in engagement or is that something you'll do in the future, but not right now? Or is there anything else you want to tell the audience yeah. that's important that I didn't ask you about? Well, um, I want to brag on the plan a little bit. Uh, that we had some, 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 some good leads on some projects. Uh, the pandemic has really put a, put a lid on those, but the Army Corps of Engineers actually came to us using our Regional Resilience Master Plan for some options for flood storage upstream. This is more out in the rural area of Shelby County. And uh, the plan provided the locations for those uh, for the Army Corps to consider. And uh, we're spending about a half a million dollars doing a study 
to determine which of those locations would be um, could be used for future uh, flood storage, which I think that's uh, that's that's a really neat neat deal that the Army Corps of Engineers took our plan and used it, and it's providing services for us. Well, that's uh, ideal. I mean, that's what you want to have happen. Um, it's not only for people who didn't do the plan to use it, but also for a plan to unlock other opportunities, um, whether they be grant opportunities, planning opportunities. It sounds like the plan the uh, did a good job of that. So um, I will, um, as I said, post a link to the resilience plan in the show notes and, and as well as a link to, you know, if people want to, the plan itself, but also the webpage for your office if people want additional information or want to contact you. Yeah, it's real easy, resilientshelby.com. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I've been talking to Jared Darby, who is the, we'll just say he is the coordinator and administrator of the resilience and sustainability work in Shelby County. And so Jared, uh, thanks for joining me today. And I look forward to meeting you in person at some point. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for having me. I always enjoy an opportunity to share the good work that we're um, doing for the community in terms of resilience. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis, everybody. I'm Emily Trenum. You're listening to WYXR 91.7 FM. And we're talking about resilience this week. And my guest for the second half of the show is Charlie Santo, who's head of the City and Regional Planning Department at University of Memphis, who's one of our regular commentators. So welcome back, Charlie. Hey, Emily. Good to be here. So, Charlie, one of the reasons, and I think I said this at the top of the show, is I wanted to do this show right now is because I feel like resilience is top of mind for people because of the recent climate events and, you know, kind of gets you thinking, could that happen here? And as um, Jared Darby told us in the first half of the show, we've really done a lot to prepare for it. Um, Shelby County has been more forward thinking than a lot of other regions in preparing for that, and um, which, of course, is great news. But it occurred to me that, um, you know, you know me, I like to define terms so I don't have to ring my jargon bell. And it didn't really occur to me to, to define resilience because on some level it's, it's self-explanatory. Um, but maybe we should talk about what resilience means from a planning perspective. So yeah. can, you, can you help with that? Sure. I mean, yeah, you like to define terms and I like to put things in context. So, <laughs> so it works well. Um, but yeah, so resilience in, in, in planning and in recent public policy, it has, to, has a lot to do with the environment and natural hazards. And, and that's really what your conversation with Jared was about. Um, but the term resilience has, has kind of broadened. And, uh, but in regards to the environment, resilience is a concept that has sort of emerged from an evolving understanding of how cities, the built environment, interacts with the natural environment. Um, so there's, there's kind of a long history to this, you know, as, as post-industrialized cities developed, 
Um, a lot of our society spent decades kind of seeing these things as separate entities, essentially building cities and, and suburbs by taming nature and kind of pushing it out of the way with bulldozers and pesticides and zoning regulations. And then we started to walk that back. You know, the environmental movement of the 70s started to reverse that. You think about Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. And then because you asked for the planning context, for the planning nerds out there, it's kind of the, the watershed works here are Ian McCarg's Design with Nature uh, and later Anne Spurns writing about uh, ecological urbanism. So what's what's the watershed? Just t- define that. Well, I mean, I'm talking about water, like a watershed moment. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Okay. But well, the, you the could water... be talking about the watershed. Yeah, in this yeah. I, yeah, here we are in an environmental context and I'm <laughs> mixing my metaphors. <laughs> Um, but, watershed you know, moment. I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, and those, that's when we really started to think about the city as part of a broader system, right? Not just using architecture and engineering to shape our built environment, but incorporating ideas from other disciplines like ecology. And, and McCarg and Design with Nature actually talked about, you know, trying to regard the ecology and the landscape of a place, helping us to avoid natural hazards. And so it's a, it's as planners, we're trained to think about uh, overlapping human systems in the city, like transportation is connected to land use, is connected to the economy. But a lot of times, or for a long time, we we left out nature as an important system in that in that overlap. And so it's about building that back in. But then, as you mentioned, the the real accelerant to our attention to resilience recently has been climate change and the the increase in natural disasters. Um, you know, so we think about in the U.S., we think about Katrina and Sandy, these storms that were really deadly and devastating and just massively disruptive to our social fabric. So resilience in that regard becomes how we cities, people prepare ourselves to, to bounce back from those sort of things. And in the context of the earlier conversation, you know, the natural disaster resilience competition that, that Jared was talking about and the plan that's come out of that. That is actually based on a very specific specific definition that's actually very broad. Uh, And it comes from the Rockefeller Foundations. The Rockefeller Foundation did a a city resilience framework uh, and HUD really bought into that. And that became the kind of defining premise of what we mean by resilience now in the context of this public policy. And so their, their definition of it is the capacity of individuals, communities, institutions, businesses, and systems within a city to survive, adapt, and grow, no matter what kinds of chronic stresses and acute shocks they experience. So it's it's definitely broader, that context, that definition is definitely broader than just natural hazards. Um, you know, if you look at the, the Rockefeller, sort of the, the, the framework, uh, there, there's four dimensions of resilience, there's 12 drivers of those dimensions, and it's based on seven qualities of resilient cities. All right, well, let's not, we don't have time to go into all of those today. There's 156 <laughs> variables. We can cover them all. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it's, it's, and then that gets filtered through HUD adopting it, but then HUD having its own mission and its own things, limitations that it can spend block grant money on becomes kind of the filter. And so in this context, uh, it becomes focused on natural disasters because the, that, that HUD funding was made available, uh, was obligated where there are federally declared natural disasters. So it's being, there's this broad framework, but it's being narrowed down in this case to focus on uh, dealing in places that have have faced natural disasters. Well, as Jared um, 
and I discussed, uh, and you and I have as well, the one of the reasons the resilience work is so important is that um, people in a community or a region are not equally vulnerable. Some are more so than others. And we certainly saw that um, in the wake of the, the impacts of Hurricane Ida in the Northeast. Yeah, yeah. And, and so one of the things that's evolved and I think is really important is how we think about resilience to natural hazards. We've gone beyond just looking at places that are, that are vulnerable, right? So it's easy to sort of identify and map out physical locations that are, are prone to flooding, say, right? They're in a floodplain or there's poor drainage. But there's been an increased focus on looking at not just physical places, but the people that are impacted and how people are impacted differently. Uh, and so that is a concept that's now ingrained in this realm of resilience called social vulnerability. Uh, it looks at the social factors, demographic, economic characteristics that influence a population's vulnerability to environmental hazards. Um, so it, really, it's about considering the characteristics that affect people's capacity to anticipate, cope with, resist, recover from a natural hazard. Uh, and we've seen it you know, from, from everything um, from Katrina to COVID, right? In Katrina, it became apparent and we're looking at who evacuated and who didn't, right? People that didn't have anywhere to go or any way to get there or didn't have the info um, or, or with COVID. I mean, you know, the, the, the idea of resilience is sort of agnostic to what kind of hazard it is, right? So COVID is also, pandemics are also a, a hazard. Uh, and we've seen that this pandemic has had a greater impact on communities of color and residents in low-income areas, not because those people are genetically predisposed to disease, but because of the social factors, right? They're in jobs that they can't do from home. They work in the service sector in the, in the grocery store or their hospital orderlies or, or meat packers, and that put them on the front line. Or they've got multiple families living in one house under one roof sort of crammed together. Um, and so then those things, those social vulnerabilities sort of compound uh, when, in this case, the, the response of the pandemic is to move everything online and maybe people don't have access to broadband internet. So those, those social factors becoming incredibly important. Well, I hadn't thought about, you know, resilience, capital R resilience in the context of COVID, but um, until you just mentioned it, but of course there's a lot of the, a lot of applicability there. Jared and I talked about, you know, part of the sustainability plan, the resilience plan was talking to people about what they were concerned about. And of course, earthquakes came up um, and wind and well, for sure, you, I mean, to me, I think of flooding as the most, the threat that is uh, the most acute for Shelby County and a big part of the you know, the, the, the resilience plan. And we talked about a number of these projects in the first half was was developing projects that essentially are places for water to go. The project in Millington and the the Wolf River, that's and, and that's really what we're a lot of the planning is about. Mm -hmm. um, and of course that's great because I do feel like we're better prepared than we were um, if we it's inevitable we'll have future flooding here. And I feel like we're better prepared. But what else do cities need to do to be resilient um, besides, you know, in our case, finding spots for the water or putting other sort of infrastructure? It's really physical infrastructure we're talking about. What else can cities do to make themselves more resilient? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, it's it's part of it. It's the difficulty in predicting what the hazards are going to be. 
And so you mentioned, you know, water is, is the main thing we think about. You just sort of want to identify what are the hazards that are likely in this area. Uh, and FEMA, FEMA has this new set of maps and calculations. They calculated a, um, a national, they did a national risk index map. And, and for nerds that want to poke around on a map, uh, we can put that in the show notes. Um, but they're looking at the risk index at the county and tract level. And what it does is it looks at the, the expected loss, which is the, the damage likely to be caused by some disaster. Uh, and the index is that expected loss multiplied by the social vulnerability factors divided by community resilience factors. And I, in other words, the loss due to the hazards is increased by social vulnerability and mitigated by community resilience. Uh, okay. So that's, can you, can you say that again, maybe in plainer language? <laughs> well, so you, you, you're trying to figure out what the expect, the expected loss is the damage that's going to occur, right? If there's a disaster, whether it be a tornado, an ice storm, uh, whatever, there's going to be right. some, some property damage, some, some loss of life. And that is, there's, there's levers that affect that or that, that sort of tie onto that. It's that that loss is increased by the, the prevalence of social vulnerability, and it's mitigated by the existence of community resilience factors, things that we're okay. doing to, to make okay. the community more resilient. And so in, when I think about that, in my mind, there are things in that equation that we can control and things that we can't. And the thing that we can't control are the, the natural hazards. The weather. We, we, can't, we can't control, control the weather. The weather. <laughs> but, so that means that we have to address the other levers. Right, we have to address um, the social vulnerability factors and the community resilience factors. And so, if you think about, it becomes really basic, right? If you think about your own your own household uh, and how you become more resilient or able to bounce back from any kind of disaster, what are the things you need? Right, you need, a, need some kind of a steady income. You need a, a savings to lean on. You need a roof over your head. You need to be able to get around. Uh, maybe you need people that you can rely on, whether that be family or friends or a church or a civic organization. You need access to information. You need some baseline level of, of knowledge, of education, access to medical care and mental health. Um, those are the things that we can control, not not the hazards. Um, to the extent that we can, we can have people not live in areas that, that are prone to flooding, but those other well, factors. Well, I was going to say, I think there's there are some policy changes that could, like, yeah, d- don't allow people to build trailer parks in a flood zone. <laughs> I mean, I'm simplifying, right. but I mean, there are things like that that we can change. But I, uh, but but yeah, we can't. There's a lot we can't control. Right, but the things that we can control are the are the basics, the things that we've been trying to to control, you know, all along. It's so if you're if you're brilliant at the basics, and you you eliminate poverty and, and systemic issues, that feeds into resilience, right? It's it's not about creating some sort of new engineering solution to, to you know divert the weather or, or or channelize the streams. It's the other things that we can control that we need to control. Well, and what about um, you know regional approaches? I mean, the this is a regional plan, but um, but is I guess that's going to have an impact on 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 uh, certainly Selby County's success in being able to um, you know to plan for future future incidents. 
Yeah, I, I, I think you're right to bring up regionalism. I think that's that's really important, and that's something I've thought a lot about um, over the past. I don't know how how long we've been in this pandemic now. <laughs> Seems like forever. Forever. Uh, yeah, I mean, you saw it early on it, it, that our reliance on this sort of decentralized approach, where suddenly you have states kind of battling each other for for resources, and the federal government trying to decentralize decentralize the response. Um, so it, it, the scale at which to, at which we respond to things and the scale at which we act, I think matters. Um, state boundaries don't make a lot of sense. Uh, state boundaries are kind of these weird invisible lines that, you know, don't have anything to do with the way that humans interact with, with one another. And so I, I, for, 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 for a million reasons, I think, more broadly than this question, I think it's we need to start considering metropolitan area governance and sort of de-emphasizing the political and, and the public finance role of states. And then at the same time, remembering that we have a federal government and that it plays a it plays a role and should play a role. Um, you know, so if you think about it, the, the state boundaries, don't, they're not watersheds for people. They're not catchment areas for where people congregate and, and, and go about their lives. A metropolitan area really is. I mean, that's the, the area that's the, the central city and the, the suburbs around it where there's a high degree of social interaction. And those cross state lines because people cross state lines. So that means in a, in a crisis, the city of Memphis shouldn't have to be coordinating with Nashville 200 miles away. It should really be coordinating with South Haven in Mississippi or, or West Memphis in Arkansas. Uh, but we're, our, our system is not set up that way right now. Well, plus all of these waterways that are in, in, in specifically regarding flooding, all these waterways that are fitting into the Mississippi that are flood dangers, they're not starting and stopping in Shelby County. And <laughs> it's probably not enough for us to make places for the water to go. Um, yes, that kind of yeah. thing needs to happen on a regional level. Yeah, absolutely. Some new kind of system that we're, we're pooling resources at the metro level. And then, you know, the other point, that I think about here is the is the role uh, of a central federal government function, uh, because governments at a smaller geography, at the city level, even the state level, even in regular times, they're going to be competing with each, with each other for for capital, and so that means that any kind of uh, redistributive policy, you know, things that deal with social welfare, are really hard to pull off at the local level, right? Because every city is af- is afraid to spend more to increase its tax rate because they're competing with a city next door that's not going to increase its tax rate. So those things have to happen at a, at a higher level, at a broader geographic level. And in the absence of a regional government, that is the federal government. And so we need to believe in government again as a society. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And my guest is Charlie Santo from University of Memphis. And we're talking about resilience in Shelby County. So Charlie, um, let's shift gears for a minute because when you and I were talking uh, or emailing before the show, um, one thing we talked that, I think we agreed one thing we wanted to talk about a few minutes more was the regional green print plan. Because that, and, and I alluded to that in the first half of the show, I and mean, really the regional green print plan came first. And it ushered in a lot of positive uh, planning activity here. You could certainly say it laid the groundwork for Memphis 3.0, but 
take us back to that and why it, if you just briefly what it is and, 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 and then why it was so important, because I think it was, in how Memphis and Shelby County have started planning. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's really the reason that this Department of Sustainability and Resilience exists, and it's the reason a lot of things exist. But um, So this was 2011 um, when Memphis and Shelby County um, was awarded a Sustainable Communities Regional Planning Grant from HUD, one of, I think, 60, 60 or so communities across the country. And yeah, it's interesting if you think about the people that were involved in this, uh, you know, so we had this Memphis Shelby County of office of sustainability that was leading the creation of this green print plan. Paul Young was the administrator, uh, you know, would later go on to lead HCD. Now the downtown Memphis commission, John Zena was hired to develop the green print plan is now our director of planning. And so, you know, beyond just the, the people who were involved and the impact that they're having today, there were lots of us. So, so this was a, a green print plan. It was a green infrastructure plan because it was a the funding from the federal government was focused on sustainability. And so the idea was to create this plan around green infrastructure. But there were lots of associated studies with it. Like there was a bus transit to workplace study. There was a health impact assessment. Um, there were 20 sub planning demonstration projects. A lot of things that were actually implemented. Um, so we were, our department was involved in a, one of these sub-planning demonstration projects and developed the plan for the Delta River Regional Park, which is the, the park in West Memphis on the other side of the Big River Crossing. Um, but I think more importantly, the creation of the green print plan, the process to create it, had a huge impact on eventually leading us to develop a comprehensive plan in Memphis 3.0. And I think a lot of people that are involved in, in planning in the Memphis community would, would agree with that. I mean, so this was... In 2011, right, we're a city that hadn't done a comprehensive plan since 1980, uh, 83, whatever it was. Uh, we didn't really even have a, have a real planning function at the time, let alone a plan. It was We had a, a planning department, but basically it was kind of stamping permits and approving plan unit developments. Um, it was funded by building permits that in 2008 had kind of dried up because of the recession. Um, and, then in, and then in 2011, because of the recession and, and, and post-recession federal stimulus spending, this grant emerged. We, we, we went out and got it. Um, and the scope was sustainability and green infrastructure. But, you know, you and I were both involved in this in, in, in the planning process. There were, what, 14 working groups. Um, and it really felt like a comprehensive plan. I mean, there was a neighborhood and land use working group through the lens of green infrastructure, a, a, a transportation group through the lens of green infrastructure. Um, and this, I think, was all very intentional, right? It was intentionally set up to give the document a framework that explicitly resembled a comprehensive plan as a way to lay the foundation for future action. Uh, and I think it really did that. And in a lot of ways, it laid this lasting foundation. It created a public entity, right? So the infusion of, of federal money supported the creation of the, the Office of Sustainability and now Sustainability and Resilience created these mechanisms for community participation in the planning process, it raised awareness of planning issues, and it got the, the local philanthropic community uh, really engaged in supporting planning and plan implementation. And that is kind of really what led to the creation of Memphis 3.0. And well, and, and one of the, one of the um, unusual things about the plan is that it really was a truly regional plan and 
you know, we haven't done much regional planning in the Memphis area, probably because we're three states and we compete on economic development. And of course, there's three governors. And I mean, so it's, it's, you know, it's complicated, but we don't, we, we don't do a lot regionally. Um, I think we pay some lip service to it. You know, Urban Land Institute's done a great job of convening, you know, mayors in the region. But all that to say, the regional green plant plan really was a regional plan. And I think the beauty of it is, is who doesn't like greenways? Who doesn't <laughs> like waterways? I mean, even though it was, you know, there were certainly economic development, you know, aspects to it, you know, fair housing aspects, things that might be more controversial. It was really a vision um, to, to, to connect the region through green, green and blue infrastructure. I mean, that was a vision that everyone could believe in and I think could see the benefits to. And I think I want to say it was adopted. I think, you know, John Zena personally took it to every Hamlet and county seat <laughs> and everything in between in and I think all of them adopted it and um, was there just a lot of shoe leather involved with that but it was really a testament and hopefully you know establish some relationships that will lead to but I agree with you I think it's it's very powerful that a lot of the people that were involved in that plan, um, you mentioned John Zena, Paul Young, the, 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 philanthrop- the philanthropists that supported it. They're still around. And mm-hmm. so they're still, we are still doing this work. And um, we do have an office of sustainability. We do have, you know, continual accelerated build out of Wolf River Greenway. We have the resilience plan. I mean, this work is still happening. We still have a staffed office. You know, that wouldn't have happened a lot of places. But I think the fact that a lot of the same people are still around, maybe, you know, the the chairs have moved around a little bit. But that's, I think, a testament to um, how powerful the plan is. Yeah, I mean, the fact that we went from having really no public planning function to having an award-winning, multiple award-winning comprehensive plan, right? This won the uh, American Planning Association Burnham Award, uh, won an award from the Congress for New Urbanism. Um, I mean, that's that's pretty impressive. And I think it does all start start with the green print. So uh, thank God for the recession, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that, but... (laughs) All right, Charlie, well, we're going to have to leave it there. So you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. We've been talking about resilience, sustainability in Shelby County in the, in the Memphis area. And I've been talking to Charlie Santa, one of our regular commentators, who's with the City and Regional Planning Department at University of Memphis. So thanks, as always, for being on, Charlie. You bet. Thanks, Emily. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy. Thank you.